I'm going to touch that microphone because it's a little temperamental. Can you hear me? This way? Okay. I'm going to have to bend down. But... Well, I'm almost afraid to. Don't be afraid. Let me know. If, wave at me if you can't hear me. Well, good evening. I think I lost my voice and my brain during the game time, so we could be in trouble. Thanks a lot, Rachel. I think I take those games way too seriously. Seriously, I, I, I hope my voice holds out. Um, I'd like to ask us to just bow for a word of prayer before we begin this section of our evening. Lord, we've all most likely heard much about your love in our lifetime. We are asking that you would use our time together tonight to take us deeper into that love. And as a result, trust you more, thereby bringing great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, who loved us so. Amen. In the book we've been reading this year, Trusting God, we have looked in depth at the sovereignty and the wisdom of our God. The third attribute of God, which we'll study this weekend, completes the recipe, if you will, of attributes that are necessary for us to be able to trust God. We cannot trust God unless he is completely sovereign, perfectly wise, and the third ingredient or attribute, divinely loving. We need all three. Tonight we're gonna to delve into his love. But first, let's briefly review our first two times together. In our lesson on his sovereignty, we learned that sovereignty is God in the heavens doing exactly as he pleases, that he is unlimited, in power, that he is ruler and master of the universe and undeterred by anything outside himself. He reigns unrivaled. He's in total control from every major world event down to the minutest detail of our lives. This power is exercised in order to bring about his perfect sovereign plan primarily for his glory, but also for our good. God's sovereignty is his absolute and rightful rule over his creation. Horatius Bonar, a Scottish hymn writer, said about God's love, or God's sovereignty, if there be a God, a king, eternal, <coughs> immortal, and invisible, he cannot but be sovereign and he cannot but do according to his own will and choose according to his own purpose. To deny this doctrine is to deny the existence of an infinitely wise, glorious, and powerful being. God would not be God were he not absolutely sovereign in his present doings and his eternal prearrangements." Close quote. In our lesson on his wisdom, we saw that God's wisdom was more than intellect. Quoting A.W. Tozer, wisdom in the scriptures, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends 
by the most perfect means. So the emphasis with God's wisdom in the Bible is on his actions. It's more than just intellect. We see his wisdom in what he does. In studying his love, we are going to look at some very familiar passages, things you have heard maybe since you were a little girl. But let's trust that in the setting of this retreat with extra time and focus and in answer to many prayers, these familiar truths, profound truths really, will lead us into a deeper understanding of God's divine love and appropriation of it in our lives. By becoming better acquainted with these three attributes, sovereignty, wisdom, and love, we will find it easier to trust him. We will be assured that there is nothing to fear, there is a trustworthy path to walk on, and that we are deeply loved. Listen to this wordy but beautiful description by none other than Jonathan Edwards. He's wordy but beautiful, right? There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Tonight we'll talk about knowing God's love and tomorrow morning we'll talk about experiencing God's love. How do we know God loves us? Well, I couldn't resist. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And indeed it does. And there's a passage in 1 John that has so much to say about God's love. I thought we'd focus on those two verses first. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God's love at Calvary. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. These two verses tell us how God has demonstrated his love, and they also tell us what love is. His love is defined for us here, and it's demonstrated. Jerry Bridges says, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must first look at the cross, where God offered his son up as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, we see at least five things. God revealed his love, so he wanted us to know it. He paid an eternal personal price in sending his son. 
Three, he desired that we might obtain eternal life. Number four, he initiated loving us. And number five, he satisfied the wrath of God that was due us so we could know his love. I think these two verses give us one of Scripture's clearest and most complete pictures of God's love at Calvary. At Calvary, we have the perfection of holiness, glory and purity, sacrificially giving, the Father giving his Son, the Son giving his life, paying an eternal price in order to rescue defiant, wretched, sinful people. He did not love us because we were special. He did not love us because of a need he had within himself. He was not lonely. Love is not preoccupied with itself. No, none of that. He was meeting our deepest need at an infinite cost to himself. These verses say love is about sacrificing. God reached out and rescued us at Calvary by sacrificially loving us. In order to understand and appreciate God's love at Calvary, we need to understand the total lack of any right that we have to being recipients of this love. Our desperate condition can be described as sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing, wretched, miserable, rebellious, spiritually dead, a pile of dry bones, followers of the world and servants of the devil. We live for ourselves, our ambitions, our desires, and our pleasures. A.W. Pink puts it like this. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him. Everything calculated to make him loathe me. Describing us in this manner is not intended to make us hopefully, hopelessly despondent about who we are. No. But it's crucial that we see the reality of our situation without Christ. It is a blessing to see things the way they are. The truth about who we are should drive us to him. And it will aid us in understanding the extent of the love of God. We need to begin to understand how sinful we are if we are going to understand and appreciate what God did for us in providing salvation for us at Calvary. We were all under the curse of God. We deserved his wrath. But instead of meeting out his justice and wrath on us, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the great awfulness of Calvary. That is what Christ was sweating great drops of blood over in the garden. It was that he, the sinless, pure, holy beloved son, would become the object of God's wrath and hatred of sin. 
and that he would have to endure the unimaginable horror of being separated from his father's love. Ladies, he took our place. We should have been the objects of God's wrath forever. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Never has there been a love like this. We can trust a love like this. We can trust a God like this. In knowing God's love, we need to consider his sacrifice. Let's just think for a minute of some everyday examples of sacrifice. Ones most men and women make every day. Men work long, hard days only to see, whoops, only to see the money they met make get vacuumed up by their wives and kids. Mother's constant care and nurturing her children. It's continual self-denial. What about all that goes into your feeding your family? Sometimes three times a day for a lot of us. Wives, wives may not get their preference as to the kind of house they'd like to live in or where that house may be located. It would be a sacrifice. Singles with roommates have to sacrifice. They're sharing a space. Illustrations of sacrifice are many. What is it that compels people to sacrifice? It's love that compels us to sacrifice. Love compelled God the Father to sacrifice his beloved son for you and for me. Jerry Bridges says, one of the essential characteristics of love is the element of self-sacrifice. And this was demonstrated for us to its ultimate at Calvary. It was the ultimate sacrifice. There never has been and never will be a sacrifice as great as Calvary. There couldn't be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. This word so emphasizes the intensity or the greatness of his love. This intense and great love compelled God the Father to forsake and punish his beloved son for you and for me. I think we need to stop often and ponder this unimaginable love that we have received in spite of our unworthiness. Ponder this incredible sacrifice, this transaction that changed our eternal destiny. And we were so undeserving. To stop and ponder what really happened there is what people mean when they say, go back to Calvary. It means, Go back to that event. Take some time and let it really sink in. Don't hurry. Study it until you have a deeper appreciation for it, a clearer understanding of God's sacrifice for you. I think it will color everything in your life. Knowing the depth of this kind of love will help you trust God. This weekend, during your quiet time with the Lord, I encourage you to go back to Calvary. How do we respond to this great love? 
Well, I've chosen two ways. We praise and we pray. Let's talk about praise. Charles Wesley nailed it. In his classic hymn, and it's in our book, I checked, And Can It Be. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? How can it be, ladies, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's an appropriate response to Calvary. How can it be? Can it be that I should be given the opportunity to live eternally in stunning glory? A rebel living in absolute perfection? That I should be forgiven of all my sin? Another hymn that nails it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. How can this be? A line from another hymn says, in contemplating Calvary, I scarce can take it in. Is that your attitude towards Calvary? It should be absolutely breathtaking. So, a fitting response to Calvary, wonder, awe, and praise, and trust. The next response, prayer, should sound something like this. Lord, I need help in comprehending this. I pray that often. Lord, help me appreciate what you did for me. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. God's love is a great and mighty thing that we do not know on our own. Ask him to reveal it to your heart as you meditate on the word of God. Lord, help me understand your great and mighty and sacrificial love. Another great prayer, Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. There are many wondrous things in God's law. The most wondrous is the sacrifice he made for us at Calvary. Ask him to open your eyes to what happened there. This prayer is for all of us. We can always go deeper into the love of God. Now, perhaps you are a woman who has never really understood the love of God. Maybe it doesn't seem real to you and you're wondering how you could know this God personally. I would encourage you to find a woman you trust this weekend and ask her your questions about God. This God of love who is so trustworthy, this love, this forgiveness for your sins and assurance of spending eternity in heaven can be yours. You too can learn to trust God. 
1 John 5.13 says, I write these things, things in God's word, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This intimacy with God can be a reality. You can know that he is completely trustworthy. Eternal life is available to you if you are willing to submit your life to his lordship, repent of your sins, and by faith embrace the Lord Jesus as your very own personal savior. God sacrificially gave up his only son for you. He loves you. There's more we can know about God's love, moving on from Calvary, and that is that God's love cannot fail. Excuse me just a minute. Our relationship with Christ is secure and trustworthy. The the Bible describes this as being in Christ. Being in Christ is the spiritual position or realm that God places us in when we become one of his children. God's love comes to us because we are in Christ. God the Father loves his son Christ. So because of our position in Christ, we are privileged to share in that love because of our organic union with him. Now, I have a little visual here. This is some hot water and I have a tea bag. And you all know what happens when you put a tea bag in a cup of hot water. And I might need this to get through this talk. (laughs) There we have it. Christ is the hot water, and I'm the tea. Now, I don't become part of Christ. I mean, you make that clear. But this is an illustration of our union, our organic union with him. What's his is ours, is another way to say it. Think about that. The love the Father has for the Son, if you can imagine this, is ours to enjoy as well. Because we are in Christ, this is a love you can trust. Ephesians 1.3, in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the love of God pouring out spiritual privileges and blessings on us. This is incredible love. How did Jonathan Edwards say it? We've been deluged with his love. He said we are bathing in an ocean of love. Is there anything more overwhelming than the ocean? You know, isn't that what you're struck with when you see it for the first time or when it's been a while since you've seen it? And you climb over that sand dune, and oh my, there it is, just like I remembered it. But I had forgotten just how big it is. Oh Lord, your love is like that. In some mystical way, we have been brought into this realm of spiritual privilege and blessing the Bible calls being in Christ. That is our standing. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Calvary again. Romans 8.1, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. Our position is secure in Christ. Romans 8, 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I ever get the tea out of that water? Nope, it's in. His love cannot fail. By the grace of God, as a new Christian, this positional truth, as some call it, of being in Christ was heavily emphasized and taught to me. This gave me much needed stability and security and confidence in the Lord. I knew my only hope was that I was in Christ and he was in me. I knew Romans 8, 35 and 37 were true. I have never doubted my salvation. I knew that I was secure eternally and nothing I did could alter this core relationship with God. Many, many times, I guess I could say, I didn't know which end was up in my Christian life. I've had lots of struggles. But underneath all that struggle, I knew there was no condemnation and that nothing could ever separate me from God's love. Not even my own repeated failures. The transaction had taken place, and I was in, like the tea in the hot water. And this security was available to me because of the steadfast love of God. <clears throat> Another reason his love cannot fail and why we can trust him is that we have been made his adopted children. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Romans 8:15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Don't we love that one? Ephesians 1:5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love, it says he did this. 1 John 3, 1, we see what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love, sorry, the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This kind of love is beyond explanation. It's an and can it be kind of love. It's a I scarce can take it in kind of love. John MacArthur said that it's a love that is utterly astonishing. Are we astonished by the love of God? If we understand how undeserving we are and yet how gracious God has been in putting us into his family, we can reason that this love is indeed astonishing. This love that made us rebels and haters of God, his children. How can it be? 
Indeed, it is a love that is beyond us, but it's real and it's ours. And knowing this about God's love will help you trust him. Besides being in Christ, Jesus uses a metaphor in John 15 to illustrate in another way the security of our relationship with him. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. All that the vine is, oops, is also in the branches. The vine supplies life and nutrients to the branches and God supplies us in much the same way with everything we need. All the spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with come to us through our connection to the vine. Do you think of yourself as you go through your day as being that closely connected to God? God would have you think of this and draw strength and hope from it. We branches can trust our vine. We have to, we must. To wrap up, God's love defies description. <coughs> there just aren't words, but there are pictures. Tea in a cup of hot water, illustrating our oneness in Christ, father and child, we are dearly loved. Vine in the branches, we are attached, we are attached to the source of everything we will ever need. And there is Calvary, where we were loved to the uttermost. Though we can't completely understand, we can embrace, worship, and enjoy this love. And we can trust this love. We can throw the entirety of our beings in his loving arms and know we are safe. And in the wonderful, amazing love of God, we can trust. Can it be? I scarce can take it in. Let's pray. Father, we know that indeed you have truly loved us. And we cannot thank you enough. You have been unspeakably gracious to us, Lord. Open our eyes, please, Lord, that we might understand, appreciate, and appropriate this amazing love. Thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you that we are your children. Thank you that we are secure in Christ. Do your work in our hearts that we might be astonished by your love and live a life of grateful obedience and trust in our precious, precious Savior's name. Amen.